I'm not sure who it was, that love um, may not make the world go round, but it sure makes the trip worthwhile. Um, and I think that's sort of a general sentiment among people. Whatever era, whatever age, whatever group of people you may be talking about, it seems to be rather universal thought that love is the greatest, that love is par excellence, that there's nothing more important. All you need is love. That's all you need is love. The songs, the poems, the books, Hallmark Channel, uh, the stories, the films, and whatever else uh, that men and women have authored and participated in um, that are about love would just fill volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes. And I would say that the world kind of comes together in a consensus in regards to this, that love is really that which is the greatest experience. And at that point, I think the world actually agrees with God. The difference is God's definition of love and the world's definition of love. Uh, because the, the love that God affirms is not the same love that the world understands. And we'll be seeing that in this text. Uh, for our text is about love. And it's not about human love, but a divine kind of love. And it really is, um, th this is just some of my favorite scripture, because it just says it all in a sentence. You know, what is the greatest command? Love God, love others. If you can do those two things, you, know, you're, you don't even need a law to tell you what to do. Uh, the difficult part for humans is to separate the human playing out of love and all the craziness or the codependency or the emotion or the feeling and yet the biblical love, which Christ talks about. Um, and so that's what we'll be looking at. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Read verses 34 and 40. And as you're doing that, Grant, it's nice to see you. So. So. Now go ahead and read Matthew 22, 34 through 40. For the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing a series of exchanges between the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and then finally the Sadducees last week with Jesus, all for the purpose of trying to discredit him. And every time, Jesus actually discredits them. And so now the Pharisees are back and they say, you know what, we want one more shot. 
we want one more chance that you know just bring them down so this is their attempt um, so these groups have tried to test him politically and theologically and now they're back again theologically um, in fact in this last attempt with the Sadducees in the in the parallel version in Mark 12 verse 34 it says when this was over no man dared to ask him any more questions okay we're, we're done there's nothing else we can do um, so let's look at verse 34 when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence they were gathered together so the Sadducees have been silenced. The Pharisees now come together. Now, it's an interesting thing in the verse 34 where it says silenced. The verb to put to silence is literally gagged. It's like Jesus' response have just gagged the Sadducees so that there's nothing they can say. Um, it wasn't that they wanted to be silent. It's they had no choice. He brought their argument to an end where they were absolutely without another word, without another thought, without another idea, without another response. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said, okay, Sadducees didn't get it. It's our turn. And so out of that meeting of the minds comes the final question to test him. Verse 35, one of them, that is a Pharisee who was a lawyer, a scribe, um, who was an expert in the law, and, make, and Matthew makes it very clear that the purpose of this, of having this expert in the law come to Jesus to test him about that. And really what they're testing him, because they believed in Moses and the things that Moses said, is he going to be consistent with what Moses said? Is he going to discredit Moses? Because if he discredits Moses, we can discredit him. So in verse 36, we have the question that was supposed to bring Jesus down. Master, and again, that false flattery that goes there. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, stop there. Because regardless of the reason that was being asked, isn't that just an excellent question for us? It is amazing to me how many people I talk to who get in arguments about different things and if they just went back and they said whoa whoa time out what's the greatest commandment oh it's it's to love god oh and if i'm loving god i'm also supposed to, to love others try to imagine in your house and the family's having sort of one of their family fights and somebody stopped the fight in the middle of it and said, whoa, 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 time out. What's the greatest commandment? Oh, well, to love God. And right along with that is to love one another. Well, the, during this argument that we're all having, how is that getting played out? I wonder how many things would just sort of change at that point. Probably just escalate, throwing the Bible at us again, you know. Um, but just sort of having that kind of mindset. Um, so I think we need to just stand back and ask ourselves, what is our supreme obligation to God? 
what is the greatest command? So Jesus responds by quoting something which they were all familiar. Uh, we know that the religious Jews recited the Shema twice a day in Jesus' time. And that's Deuteronomy 6, 5. And that's the passage that Jesus is now going to quote from. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Every Jew recited that twice a day. So when Jesus says, well, the greatest of all the law is to love your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength. And now the word love in Hebrew is a verb. And that's where we depart from our culture. It refers primarily to the love of will, the love of mind, the love of action, rather than the love of feeling. It's not the love of emotion. It's a commitment. I had a man come into my office and he said, my wife and I don't love each other. I go, what do you mean you don't love each other? We don't love each other. We want to get a divorce. And, I, and he goes, well, he goes, what should I do? I go, go home and love your wife. And he goes, I just told you we don't love each other. I go, I don't care. What does that have to do with anything? Go home and love your wife. How can I go home and love my wife if I don't love my wife? Because the difference is you keep on thinking that it has to be a feeling. And love is not a feeling. It's an action. It's a verb. If you read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, show me anywhere where it's a feeling. Every man has a responsibility to love his wife with a verb. doesn't matter how you feel. Every wife has a responsibility. You didn't think I was going to go there, did you? Okay, yeah. Um, every, now that my wife is retiring, I've got to re-emphasize this because she's going to be around a lot more. Um, every, every wife has a responsibility. To, I know, I'm in trouble. Uh, I will. <laughs> if I'm not here next week, you know why. <laughs> if every, every wife has a responsibility to love their husband with a verb. And this man kept on going, but I don't feel it. And I go, you know, it's not the Tina Turner song that says what love has got to do with it. It's what does feeling have to do with it? It's it's a commitment. It's an action. This is the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. This is the kind of love that God was talking about for the Hebrews. It's a decision. It's a commitment. It's a verb. So I love regardless of how I feel. Now, our culture, our, the books we read, excuse me, even Hallmark Channel, always focuses on the feeling. And we buy into that, and the fantasy is, I will f this will make me feel. I will feel this love instead of, no, if I do it, there's a good possibility that the feeling will follow. Because I'm being obedient to God, and then by being obedient to God, God can change my heart. But if I have this heart of stone, and I'm not letting God in, how am I ever going to love somebody else? So it just changes to love is a verb. And so go through 1 Corinthians 13 and say, how do I do that 
with the people in my world. This is the highest kind of love. Not the love that you just feel, but the love of dedication, the love of commitment, the love that says, this is right, this is what I'm supposed to do, this is what God tells me to do, and this is my obedience to God. And agape is the love of intelligence, the love of purpose, it's the love of will. It's that highest kind of love, self-sacrificing love. Um, and so he says to them what they already knew, that the number one thing is to love God with your whole being, your whole heart, and your whole mind. And I think there's something to be learned by just looking at these words. Because the word heart, basically in the Hebrew understanding, is the core of a person's identity. This is who I am. I'm loving you with who I am. And in Proverbs 4.23, it says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So, guard your heart, because that's who you are. In the world, the word soul um, seems when it's isolated, can refer here to emotion. For example, Matthew 26, verse 38, it says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. So it's played out, where emotions get sort of played out there. And mind, as I see, is having to do with resolve and purpose or intention. That this is what I purpose to do. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do this because it's my mind. Because, and we come up with statements like, they had a mind to do it. Or they had a mind to do this. Or they had a mind to do that. It didn't matter what anybody was going to say. Their mind was made up. And they had a mind to do that. And again, you notice that these things aren't just all pushed together. It's not just real quick. Uh, love the Lord the God with all heart, soul, and mind. It says with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind. Like, like pausing to say this is important. Don't just recite it. So it's basically literally saying you are to love the Lord your God with everything. God wants people who, with that whole being, love for him. Not just, okay, I'm going to love him with my emotions today, or as long as I feel good this morning, I'm going to love God. Or as soon as I you know, don't feel good, I'm just going to get angry at God. Or if God doesn't do what I want him to do, then I'm going to get upset. Or I'm going to determine to follow God, but as long as he keeps on doing what I want him to do, and then when he doesn't do what I want him to do, I think I'll go follow somebody else. No, he wants people who are wholly committed. He gave himself in death for us, for our sin. And he who gave himself wholeheartedly to us does not want our half-hearted love in return. Um, and as he loved us enough to give us his son, so we're to love him enough to give him ourselves. That's the response. So what does that mean? God demands that we love him with a love that is as wide as all of our capabilities and our capacities. So Jesus goes to this law. So what's the greatest law? This command. And he says, well, love. And our first response as humans is, you can't command somebody to love. You can't command somebody to do that. And that's fine to have that kind of argument with one another. But I wouldn't tell God that. God, you can't tell me to love somebody. 
because he just did. And he meant it. And because he commanded it, it means we can do it. And he tells us to do it with all of our strength, to do it actively, to actively display that love of God. Not just to say that we love him, but to practically live it out. And again, this wasn't so for the Jews. They could recite it, but they didn't live it. They didn't live, love God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul. They were going through religious motions, but that's all they were doing. They weren't doing it, they weren't doing it to honor God. They were doing it to see what they could get out of it. It was their pride, their ego, an appearance of looking good. Yet as believers, we are to be known as a people who love. In fact, they will know we are Christians by our love. Uh, <clears throat> not by our theology, as much by our love. Now, only, not only are we to be, and I shouldn't have said that, because our theology is to love. So, they will know us by our theology, but our theology be being played out in love. I, if I don't stay the script, I get in trouble. Um, not only are we to be known that way, we are defined that way. If you take a look at the last verse in Ephesians, in Ephesians, it says, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. They love them in sincerity. Now, take a look at the last verse in 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, it says there, cursed are those who love not the Lord Jesus Christ. How are we going to be defined? By those who love God, who are going to be blessed and full of grace, or those who are going to be cursed because we choose not to love God. <clears throat> so what God desires from us is that we love him. And what kind of love is this? Well, if you look at the scripture, and you might want to just, you can write down some of these verses it is a love that meditates on God's glory. You see that in Psalm 18. It is a love that trusts in God's great power. We see that in Psalm 31, 23. It is a love that seeks fellowship with God. Psalm 63. It is a love that secures the peace of a soul. You just have a peace. Psalm 119, verse 165. It is a love that is sensitive to how God feels. Psalm 69, 9. It is a love that loves what God loves. Psalms 119, verses 72, 97, and 103. It is a love that loves whom God loves. 1 John 5, 1. It is a love that hates what God hates. Psalm 97, 10. It is a love that grieves over sin. Matthew 26, 75. It's a love that rejects the world. 1 John 2, 15. It is a love that longs to be with Christ. 2 Timothy 4, 8. And above all that, it's a love that obeys. So when God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love others 
the same. That's just something that we obey. Because that's what love does. It obeys. And what are the evidences of love for God? A communion. You have a, a deeper sense of communion. That there's a contentment in God. I find when I am hungering after the blessings more than I'm hungering after the blesser, that I find myself in trouble. But when I could be willing to give up my blessings in order to be, have a right relationship with the one who does the blessing, that's when I find that my love for God is stronger. Now, the problem with all of this is that man was born with a sinful heart, uh, a hardened heart. Um, there's a, I've used this illustration before. There's a game in England it's called bowls, B-O-W-L-S. And what they do is they take one ball and they roll it down a field and it's there. And then you get a bigger ball and you have to try to hit the small ball with the bigger ball. Seems really simple. But each one of those balls has is off center. So when you roll the bigger ball, you have no clue. No matter how straight you roll it, because it's off center, it will go all kinds of different ways. So it, it never goes where you intended it to go. I've got that same bias in me. I don't know about you, but I, there's my target, and I'm heading for it, but there's this bias in me but all of a sudden I'm going this way or that way. And, you know, some people call it ADD. Some people call it addiction. Some people call it all kinds of, but whatever it is, I intend to do what I'm supposed to do and I don't always do it. And that which I don't want to do, I end up doing. And I call that the sin bias inside of me. And so that's why it's not always easy to love the way that God loves in fact, Jesus said, out of the hearts of men come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lies, and slander. So something has to happen to our hearts. It needs a transplant. And in the book of Ezekiel, there's an interesting verse. It says this, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. A new heart, a transformed heart, a transplanted heart that comes from God. That's why our purpose is to see lives transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God when given to us in salvation enables us to love God. Again, Romans 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We can't love the way we're supposed to love until we have received the love from Christ. How do we love? Because he first loved us. So Jesus comes to pay the penalty for our inability to love or for our falling short in loving, but then he also fills us with the Holy Spirit in order that we can love others. Because you can't love, or love God or love your neighbor unless you've experienced the love of, and the grace of God. 
And then Jesus goes on and says from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, he says, and the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he told him what the first command was, but then he says, oh, by the way, here's where it gets fulfilled. This is how it's fulfilled. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will do the same. Because a person who loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength will never place anything above God. He will do whatever he can to try to honor God in every situation. And if he loves his neighbor as himself, he will still do the same. I met with a person who told me, well, you know what? Our family likes Jesus, but our family doesn't love Jesus. Which is an interesting concept, but I think that's so true of our society. We like Jesus, we like his teaching, we like everything, we like his love, we like all that, but we don't love him because if we loved him, we would obey him, and because I'm not willing to obey him, I just sort of like Jesus. And our family's not willing to obey him because we don't do any of the things that God says we should do when it comes to love. And so I was just sort of telling, and it was so amazing how open they were about that. See, I think that Jesus is telling us that until you love God as you should, we can't love others as we could. You know, if I'm not loving God, I'm never going to be able to love others the way he wants me to. I think that's born out of our own experience. For as the church has become more secular, as it has grown, as it has adapted so many other situations, I think we become less compassionate and caring. I think that's the danger of a large churches. As a whole, they can become less compassionate and caring. Uh, the same is true of our society. It has also become less compassionate and caring. And when Bill Bennett, describing the seriousness of our cultural problem, was asked, what is the answer? Police, money, National Guard, laws revised? He said, our country's problem is a moral problem. It has nothing to do with the laws, with all of that. It's a moral problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's a core value crisis. It's a crisis of the soul, which is why the church is the only answer to society's problems. And the church keeps on going back and saying, no, it's who we elect. No, it's better laws. No, it's this. No, it's that. Instead of us saying, you know what? If every single believer loved one other person into the kingdom this year, the, the amount of Christians in the United States would double, and if they did that the following year, it would quadruple. There would be a revival. But we put more energy into other things. It's God's love. Um, <clears throat> saying that expressions of compassion have a powerful effect on the lives of human beings. When someone expresses us a deep level of love, compassion and care, something happens deep within our hearts. Moods are melted, attitudes are softened, hearts are warmed, and lives get changed. I do a thing called Marketplace Chaplains. I go into a company, and I walk around for about 45 minutes, just let people know that I'm there, that there's a, the company has a chaplain, and if they ever need one, they can contact us. One lady 
was responsible for taking me around and doing a safety check. So I was with her for 45 minutes. And she was pretty cold to me. <clears throat> and we just started talking and she goes, um, told me about her life and the, what she was doing. And she goes, what does the Bible have to say about that? And I go, well, I don't know. What do you mean? She goes, well, what does the Bible say about me? And I go, well, the Bible says that God loves you. What, what do you mean? The Bible says, God, Bible says God loves you. Not only does he love you, he gave his son for you. That you could have eternal life. That's what the Bible says. And then she goes, well, I don't believe in the Bible. I go, okay, but that doesn't change the fact that, that God still loves you. And then she looked at me, but what does the Bible say about my lifestyle? I go, what difference does it make? She goes, what do you mean? I go, you just said you don't believe in the Bible. So what difference does something that you don't believe in make? I go, but all I know is that God loves you. So she goes, can we talk again? And I go, sure. So the next week I came, talked to her some more. And she goes, what does the Bible really say about my lifestyle? I go, well, I'll tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that God loves you. Now, I can't condone your lifestyle, and I don't think the Bible condones your lifestyle, but regardless of your lifestyle, God loves you. So you have a choice to either receive God's love or to let go of it. The next time I saw her, she's driving a forklift. She slams on the brakes of the forklift, jumps off the forklift, and gives me a hug right in the middle of the factory. And she goes, does God still love me? And I go, absolutely. Now, I could have gone in there with all the scripture, biblical evidence of what she was doing, but until she understands God's love, none of it makes a difference. And what I said last week, what we believe dictates our behavior, and our behavior determines what we get. If a person doesn't really believe that God loves them, that'll dictate their behavior that says, I don't know if I can love God. And I, don't, I definitely know I can't love others if I don't believe that God loves me. So ask yourself a question. How do you feel? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about God's love for you? Because that will define how you love God and how you love others. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together to share. And Lord, I know that each one of us will come into contact with people that maybe not aren't very likable, that we don't understand, that live a world and live in a world or in life that we can't condone, but we know that you love them. And Lord, we know that we belong to you and that everything we have is a gift from you. And that each of us will just pass this way just once. So guide us to the people you have prepared for us to meet. Guide us to the people that you have prepared for what we are going to be able to give to them in your name. And continue to show us what it means to love 
others the way you love them. In Christ's name I pray, amen.